the reading of the word from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white cloths stood before them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are a few stories that are a crime not to actually tell and let the whole world know. One of the stories we laugh about as a staff is actually with one of our worship leaders, Michael, and uh, him attempting to get a smoothie. The story goes as this, Michael comes in and as he's planning to go to work, he wants to order a smoothie, goes to a smoothie shop, and he searches the menu board extremely quickly just looking for something that embodies health. And vitamins equal health. So the first thing he sees that has vitamins on it, he quickly orders. He says, I'll take one pre-Rama to be able to take to work. He moves up to the window and the cashier, as she hands him his smoothie, says, Here you go, sir. Here is one pre-Mama smoothie. Michael takes the pre-Mama smoothie and begins driving to work and is wondering, Wow, that is... That is a very strange smoothie to have, a pre-mama smoothie. And when he got to work, we actually researched the pre-mama smoothie is a smoothie full of prenatal vitamins. And I guess in one way you could say that Michael wasn't expecting in any single way what was going to happen with that smoothie. And the funniest part when we think about that, though, is that, you know, if you see him on Sundays and uh, he leads worship really strong and his skin glows at the same time, just know it's because of the prenatal vitamins. <laughs> when we asked him after researching, like, what do you think of the pre-mama smoothie now that you're going to begin this nine-month journey? He uh, actually told us that it's very nutritious as long as you can get past the strange taste. As we go into reflecting and thinking and consuming Acts 1, which the entire church 
is consuming and thinking on this day that we call the day of ascension. Acts 1 leaves us kind of with the same feeling. This text is one that is nutritious for us. It carries nutrient, but it leaves us with a strange taste at first. Acts, which starts out actually in the book of Luke in the very beginning, Luke begins his first gospel writing by talking about the birth of the Son of God. But by the time you get to the sequel of Acts, you find that Luke is actually writing about God not birthing the Son of God, but birthing something in the people of God. And the weird feeling that it would actually leave you is that Jesus comes to basically say, I'm back, but I'm not back for long, which makes you have to wonder, what, why, why, why are you saying that in order for us to continue on, you must leave? Eugene Peterson, as he translates this very strange encounter with Jesus, this good for us to recognize but hard to take in moment of the disciples, he translates verse 11 like this. This very Jesus who was taken from, up from among you to heaven will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. He will come certainly and mysteriously. Eugene Peterson, when translating this, puts two beautiful words together that maybe describe the whole feel of this passage. Certainty and mystery side by side. You have Jesus, as soon as the disciples are trying to ask questions, he says, it's not for you to know. And then he turns around the next sentence and he goes, but hold on, there's a couple things you need to know. There's certainty and mystery. It's a whiplash of good news and bad news, which you're not unfamiliar with this. I mean, isn't this like the epitome of description of our lives right now? Is that we hold two different emotions at the same time. As I think about the week that we have here just at Highland amongst our own families, we have good news and bad news happening at the same time. As we're in the midst of this kind of journey of like grief of different ways that we're experiencing loss or things aren't coming back or things may never come back in certain ways, we also find these small moments of joy that are folded into it. A good conversation, a moment with a family member, time away from travel to ask harder and better questions in life. Life has joy folded into the grief. But even just the idea of this as a whole embodies certainty and mystery. Because in one way, we are really certain that at some point, things are going to open up. But the mystery that we have in life is what is the mystery of this normal? And what is the new normal? And as we've learned now that we're into, what, like week 96 at this point, as we go through this journey, we're learning that we can't shake the feeling of mystery and certainty. So the question is, how do we live in the midst of mystery and certainty together? And as the disciples are resting in this tension of mystery and certainty, Jesus says, you can be certain of three things. You can be certain that you will be something. You can be certain that you will receive something. And you can be certain that you will see something. 
What is it that they are going to be? Jesus says, you are going to be witnesses. Witnesses of who? The one who is mysterious and the one who also brings certainty at the same time. Why is it important that we think about how we dwell in the midst of mystery and certainty is because you follow the one who embodies mystery and certainty. So how you interact with the world says something about the God who created this world. That there's mystery and certainty tied together. And people who follow Jesus know that in mystery and certainty, reality shifts always have to be happening. Even with the disciples' questions, to be able to ask Jesus, is this going to be the time that you're going to restore Israel? Another way to ask that question. Is this the time where you're going to come in and work in the ways that you've worked in the past. Bring in a powerful king like David. Bring Israel back to the place that it needs to be. And Jesus says, this is a time that you will not know because a reality shift is going to happen. To catch God's dream sometimes means our dreams have to change as well. And in the midst of this reality shift, this isn't just a reality shift of Jesus' words, but who Jesus is himself. Because Jesus says that in order for you to receive, you are going to have to see me leave. Which can be kind of frustrating, which leads to the taste in the mouth that Acts 1 leaves us with, which is the idea of why does Jesus have to leave in order for us to receive? Why does Acts begin with an exit? Why do we find ourselves in this tension? There's a writer by the name of Ronald Rollheiser who writes about attention, and he really concerns his life about writing about the idea of absence. And he takes the cliche phrase that's so frustrating, and it has just a kernel of truth, and he has wondered, why does this cliche hold a little bit of weight? And the cliche that people talk about with absence is thinking about Why do we not appreciate someone until they're gone? That we can't truly appreciate someone until they're absent from us, either temporal or long-term. Why is it that there's something with appreciation that happens there? Ronald Rollheiser writes about asking that question and finding an answer to it out of all places at a service, at a funeral service that he's performing. It's the eulogy of a mother that's talking about her mother, and she addresses her grandchildren and her brothers and sisters in the midst of the eulogy. And Ronald Rollheiser says he found just a kernel of what it means in the midst of absence that creates an appreciation for us. These are the words, and maybe these is, this is what these words sounded like. Our mother, your grandmother, was a great woman. But we don't really know that yet, but someday we will. Someday we'll know this because she will come to us. She will come back to each of us in her own way, respecting who we are, respecting what our lives are, and we will get her. Get who she really was. Get what she gave us in her life and in how she died. Get how blessed we are to have had her and get that we have this exceptional, wonderful person as our mom and our grandmother 
In receiving her spirit, we will drink more fully from her depth. It was the last line that caught Rollheiser. In receiving them, we drink more deeply from who they are. Rollheiser writes it like this. In the midst of absence, we are able to find a person again. We're able to find them in a way that we're not distracted. Because let's be honest, we lose people too easily. We lose people to things like distance. We lose people to things like disagreements. We lose people to just being, having different interests that are in our lives. And Rollheiser writes that from this eulogy comes this profound thought and idea that when someone is away from you, you find a way to find them again, to receive them, and you can't lose them in a way that you could have lost them before that you can actually receive them. Remember their essence in a way that can't be taken away from you or distracted from you. And the good news that happens with this passage in Acts 1 is that when we are talking about Jesus leaving, and by leaving we mean Jesus ascending, is that Jesus doesn't just leave us in good spirits but Jesus sends his spirit, that Jesus actually tells us we will receive his spirit, his presence to be among you. If you look at that verse 9 of the way that's phrased, and different translators say it in different ways, but still every time there's a major detail that's caught in it, which is after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Notice the phrase is taken up, not taken away. Church, if there's an easier way to say it, it would be that Jesus doesn't ascend to get away from you. Jesus ascends in order to be among you. That Jesus has not left us. Jesus is working with us. That Jesus is present but present in this new way that's empowered by his spirit, which is so critical because the thing that we face is the very thing that Jesus faced for the last time, which is death. If you think about death, death very much holds us back. If you think about the fear that we let drive us in decisions or how we act, it's a form of death, the way that holds us back. If you think about the ways that we see hate and racism and injustice, you think about the ways that we hold back when we don't recognize and declare those things as evil and ask, how can we do better? You think about disease. It's a way of limiting us. It's a way of holding us back. And Jesus says, the good news is that you will receive the spirit. If the spirit of death is holding you back, the spirit of God empowers you forward. And the good news is that Jesus says, you're not going to navigate mystery and certainty alone. You're going to navigate it with my spirit alongside you. And that's something that holds power to it. Jesus says, you will be witnesses. Jesus says, you will receive my spirit. And Jesus also says, you will see something. So what do we see when we read Acts 1. We see something epic happen, and then we almost see a response that feels quite opposite. When you think about what you see in the moment, you see the disciples experience the ascension of Jesus. The text actually describes it that 
They're gazing into heaven as they see it. We don't know how long, we don't know how long it was going for, but at some point they're even told, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? It's almost comical that they experience this epic moment and then they're just gazing. Another way of being able to say it is, don't just stand there. Prepare for what's happened to happen again. And then this is where the text has to just sit with us. Because now you find after the disciples see this, you see the disciples go into quarantine. They don't develop an action plan. They don't go out and change something. They don't go out and say something. What they actually do is they go and they keep doing what they have been doing. They go to a room together and they pray and they wait. And isn't it fascinating when we think about waiting that the moment that the disciples or i.e. the moment that you or I are told to wait, you don't have to wait very long before you hear the word when come out of our mouths. We're very good people that either want to live in the past or in the future, but the beautiful thing about mystery and certainty and prayer is that we have to be present to the presence of God for today and just today. What's the power of them ending that text in just prayer? They are sitting together, not focused on their actions, but first recognizing the actions of God. There's actually a really early writer that when talking about prayer and just teaching it from its very beginning, he actually talked about we tend to focus as soon as we want to say the words our father, the first thing we want to do is we want to talk about what or how. And this early Christian writer named Origen actually gave us instruction that the best way to start within prayer is to not focus on what or how, but to start with who. The way that he phrases the question is actually, state in prayer why God matters. Why does God matter to your world? Why does God matter to the whole world? And there we find ourselves mimicking the way that Acts 1 reflects. Not starting with our actions, but remembering and stating God's actions. It's a type of prayer that helps us be able to see from day to day. Prayers are way of entering into mystery and certainty and sitting in that tension because it helps us be present. Present to what we can see for the day and present to what we can all see for the future. I remember I was, uh, when I first came to Highland, I, uh, I taught a class and I didn't know what it, to expect exactly. I remember the question was something along the lines of, I want you to uh, associate uh, objects with the nature of God. I can't remember the exact question, but I do remember the answers. I remember it being one of the first weeks I was there and we started throwing around these rich like words and imagery. So, you know, I'm waiting around the class and then I hear, you know, someone say, you know, God is like wind. I'm like, mm, that's good. That's good. That's like, that's rich. Ruach. Yes. Another person's like, it's rock. Oh, that's good. That links with Exodus that describes how God is firm. And then I remember one young lady being like, how about sparkles? 
sparkles. I remember scanning my head very quickly thinking about sparkles, sparkles. What would sparkles mean? What's a delicate way for me to say, no, God is not like sparkles? I even found myself kind of questioning my professors. Maybe, maybe this was Randy and Houston's fault that they never taught me how to answer a question like this. So I said what all teachers say when they don't know what to do. They say, would you care to elaborate on what you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, like God is kind of like, and I was like, like sparkly glitter. And she goes, exactly like sparkly glitter. I'm like, great, I just affirmed her in it. But I remember just sitting in that boat and I left that class being like, I don't know how I could have prepared myself to answer that question of sparkly glitter. Matter of fact, I still don't feel prepared to answer sparkly glitter. What do you do with sparkly glitter? If I were to describe Ascension Sunday to you, this day that reflects this text, this day that embodies Acts 1. Acts 1, the day of ascension, tells you to prepare for the glitter. You know, there's some churches that actually believe that Ascension Thursday and Ascension Sunday are the response to Lent and Ash Wednesday. And some churches creatively actually set it up to where on Ash Wednesday, you receive on your forehead the ashes in the shape of a cross. And some churches have actually flipped it to where on the day of ascension, you don't receive ashes on your forehead. You actually receive glitter in the shape of a cross. Why glitter? Because glitter reminds you that the glory of God happened. Glitter reminds you that the ascension of Jesus occurred. Not that glitter is a cover-up. Not that God is going to say at some point it's done and not recognized. No, God will take the hurts and will heal them. We will be faithful in the ways that we can, but the things that we cannot figure out on this day, one day, God will sort out on the day that Jesus comes back. It's the day that we affirm and say that Jesus is alive and he is risen and that he is at work in us. He's not away from you, church. He's working among you. And as we come off of a very hard week, I just wanna remind you of one thing. If the resurrection is confirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, his ascension is the affirmation that he's king. And just remember that a king represents the king's people, which means what happens to them happens to him. What happens to him happens to them. And that means that what happens to the king happens to the king's people. And if you're with the king, one day you will rise in glory just with the king. That's what the resurrection and ascension means to us. So church, until then, we raise our heads because today we announce that the disciples first raised theirs. So Luke, when he writes his letter, he actually addresses the letter to Theophilus, which people have mentioned before that the name Theophilus actually can translate into lover of God, which is beautiful because the message of Acts 1 keeps delivering its words to us and it delivers it to us today. 
to us to a church that is wrestling with mystery and certainty, to us to a church today that's wrestling with loss and grief, to a church that's wrestling with joy folded into it. May you hear this blessing from the message of Acts 1. Highland, in the midst of certainty and mystery, O lover of God, may you not forget that Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. Hold on to that hope.